Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Bridging Philly, connecting our communities on the issues that matter to you. Presented by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hi, I'm Raquel Williams. Welcome to Bridging Philly. Everyone deserves a second chance. We sit down with a Philadelphia native who has a story of hitting rock bottom and rising out of his situation better than ever. And now he motivates teenagers to hold themselves to a high standard and stay on course. Get the max out of life with Maxwell Brown. My program is designed for those kids that are coming to school, doing the work, but they're just trying to figure it out. Shara Day Howard has our Newsmaker of the Week, and Antoinette Lee brings us our Philly Rising Changemaker. You know, being non-binary really opens the door to having an open classroom and having a safe space because of the fact that I'm able to be myself. It's all coming up on Bridging Philly. Hello, and welcome to Bridging Philly. Maxwell Brown is a motivational speaker and a mentor in Philadelphia, and he has a program that kids in about 12 schools in the city are participating in. It's growing. It is designed to show young men specifically their full potential and give them the keys to help them navigate various issues that may be met within their young lives. Welcome, Maxwell Brown, to Bridging Philly. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, I know you motivate kids and you motivate adults, you motivate families, and you, there's a lot to talk about. How were you motivated to start motivating other people? It happened during my incarceration. I was actually locked up for murder. Um, and I was down Western Penitentiary, and I ended up getting into, well, Philly versus Pittsburgh in a basketball game. But it was only a a, a guy's for Philly and Pittsburgh to fight each other. Pittsburgh dudes had this habit of they don't fight you. When they go to fight you, they scoop you, and they call it taking you to the 12th floor, and they body slam you. Okay. Um, And then everybody jump in and stomp on you. Um, So I told these dudes that anybody ever try to stomp me or take me to the 12th floor that I was going to stab them. And so we went out to the yard. They called yard, and the whole fight broke out. And the dude tried to scoop me, and I ended up stabbing him. Um, and I went to the hole, and I went to the hearing examiner, and like, what do you got to say? And I said, if this dude wouldn't have, and I stopped. Uh, because when I got found guilty for the homicide uh, back in 92, I realized I was saying the same thing. And and I started to say, if this dude wouldn't have bothered me or came after me, I would never would have killed him, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what I said back in 92. Right. And so I stopped, and then I just was like, I ain't got nothing to say. And they gave me two years in the hole. 
And it was the best two years of my life. Wow. It actually saved my life. How old were you? Uh, at the time, I think I was maybe 24. Okay. Right? So they take me back to the cell, and I took a glance in the mirror, and I couldn't keep my eyes trained on the mirror. Mm. And I grabbed a pen, and I began to write. And I started to write about every experience that I've been through. And I realized I was suffering from insecurity and low self-esteem. Because at eight years old, my mom had took me to the police station and left me there. Nope. And she told the police, if you make me take them home, I'm going to kill them. Wow. And so at eight years old, my life lost all value. So okay. I didn't see any value in my life. Can you can you stop for a second and pause? Because that's pretty jarring to hear a mother dropping off her eight-year-old son to the police station saying, keep him, because if I keep him, I'm going to kill him. Why did she do that? What was happening in the home? Do you, uh, my, my, that you can I'm, remember at eight. Uh, well, it's not. So one, one of the things that as a kid is that you don't understand, mm-hmm. right, is that you don't see your parent as someone who could have been a child. Right. You see them as a parent, right? They Superman or Superwoman, right? And part of the healing process was realizing that my mother had a long history of negativity throughout her life, right? So my mom had five kids by three different men before she was 21 years old. So imagine her struggle, right? right? And so, but I didn't see that as a kid. You know, as an eight-year-old kid, I'm saying, why me, right? And I, I think it be it, it got to be overwhelming. We're talking about 1979. So if we look at the the time, we are the first generation removed from the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. So opportunities wasn't there. There was a lot of struggle there. It was hard to keep a family together and so forth. I'm not making excuses. What I'm saying is, is as a 52-year-old man, or at the time, as a 24-year-old man, right, I was able to process things a little differently than as an 8-year-old kid. And right. so my mom's struggle was a hell of a struggle, right? So maybe she just couldn't handle it anymore, right? I know at the time I had, I was the next to the last kid, but I also was a a, 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 a pretty difficult kid, okay. right? Because I'm trying to find my space. Right. And at eight years old, I don't got no father in the house. And, you know, I'm I'm combative. And I think it just became too much uh, for her to deal with. But I will say this, though. It probably was the best thing that ever happened to me. So you mentioned that those two years in the hole were was one of the best things that mm-hmm. happened to you. And your mother essentially abandoning you at the mm-hmm. police station mm-hmm. was also something that was mm-hmm. good that happened mm-hmm. to you. Those are two traumatic events. Mm-hmm. One of the things that that happens and I, I don't know why I look at things the way that I look at them. But you're either going to be a victim or you're going to be a fighter, right? And I think for me, I became a fighter, mm-hmm. right? Okay, you don't want me? Cool. I can I can show you better than I can tell you, right? All right I'm going a, I'm to a, I'm a show you. Um, and what happened was a guy had a gas station across the street from where I lived at, an Italian man. Um, and I used to go to his gas station every day after school. Uh, he would let me pump gas and earn tips, right? And so when he found out what happened, he came to the police station and got me. And he took me home and he raised me as a son. What he could not do was he could not erase the hurt. Right. Uh, my mom abandoned me, but he taught me 
every single thing I needed to know on how to be a man. He was a perfect example. I saw this man get up every single day at 5.30 in the morning, take a shower, get dressed. We would drive to the gas station. I would sleep in the car until it was time to go to school. Then I would go to school. Then I would come back to the gas station. He would put me in his office. I would do my homework. And then he'd say, go make some money. And then I would go pump gas, wash windows and stuff, and, and make tips. And we did that Monday through Saturday. Sunday was supposed to be a rest day, right? We watched football. Uh, he taught me how to cook, everything, mm-hmm. right? But he couldn't erase the pain mm-hmm. of the abandonment because it created a huge insecurity in me to the point where if I walked in the room and you looked at me, I didn't think you were looking at me for anything good. And I instantly got an attitude, mm-hmm. right? And that kept me into all kinds of crazy situations, right? right? Too many to talk about. And so I never realized that people saw good in me until after those two years in the hole is when I started to realize that I can control my own destiny. You can't control everything that happens to you, but Mm -hmm. you can control how you let it affect you. And the other part of those two years is I must have read over maybe 200 books, right? I read every book humanly possible because you get five books a week and I would go through five books a week and some of the authors Nathan McMillan's uh, makes me want to holler Reginald Lewis why should white guys have all the fun all authors Patrice Gaines who was a convicted murderer who now works at the well she's probably retired now but worked at the Washington Post all black authors who came from urban communities and managed to get through what it is that they went through and became a huge success. Mm -hmm. So the excuses went away. How did you finally come to terms with the abandonment issue? It's it's something that you never worked through as a young person. At what point did you finally come to terms with that so that you could break through and move forward? In in the whole. So I I put me and my mother in the algebra equation. And I said, if you take me and you remove me, what's the probability of the same thing happening? If you put somebody else there, it was 100% the same thing could happen. If you take my mother and you remove her, what's the probability of things changing? 100%. So my mother was a common denominator. And once I understood that, everything changed. So I no longer looked at myself as someone who was invaluable, who people couldn't see the good in, who didn't have anything to offer. And the crazy part is, Things would be going great until people did something to me. And whenever somebody did something to me, that whole piece in my head of her taking me to the police station flashed in my head. And that's where the anger came from. Okay. All right. That's completely understandable. Have you forgiven her? Of course. I'm 52. Right. I, I now understand what life is like. And this is what I try to tell people all the time. You can't. If you wait for somebody to say, I'm sorry, or if you wait for somebody to say that was on me, then you're still being held hostage. Mm. Right? Right. I forgave her. I'm okay. Right? I don't need the apology. Right? Because, again, I understand what it's like to be an adult and all the trials and tribulations that a person goes through 
And more importantly, I realized that my mother had a life long before I came along. And there was a lot that wasn't right and that went wrong in her life. Uh, And maybe she never got the opportunity to deal with. Before the incident uh, on the basketball court, before the stabbing and your incarceration and, and leading, you know, from eight years old to 24 years old, there's a gap there. I'm wondering what choices were you making as a young man, as a teenager coming up uh, in the world that probably you, you would have regretted made, making today? This sounds crazy to say, but I don't regret nothing. Because again, I'm working from a perspective of a negative event mm, okay. that traumatized my life, right? There was no therapy for African-Americans in the in the late 70s, early 80s. And one of the analogies that I use all the time is that I was in, it's like playing a game. When you're in the game, you're going through the motions, right? right? Only when you're out the game or have time to look at film do you have time to process what went wrong and what went right? But you can never process anything when you're coming from a negative point. So you, let me ask you this. You ever walk in a room or go into a situation where you didn't want to be of and it turned out positive? Oh, absolutely. Right? But, but you had to stop the negative thought. Right. You had to stop and say, okay, wait a minute. I got to change my attitude. Right. I got to be here so I may as well make, make the best, the best of, it. of it. Until you stop, you can't start with a negative thought and have a positive ending because a negative thought is going to lead to a negative action that's caused by negative behavior. Especially as a kid, as a young kid in an urban community where everything is all over the place. And again, we are the first generation removed from the civil rights movement, right? So we're now transitioning into mainstream America, right? So we're dealing with the racism and the discrimination, and then you're dealing with, and people don't like to talk about this, but the truth of the matter is you're dealing with the racism and discrimination in your own community, Mm. right? Because everybody want to feel like they are better than everybody or that they are not struggling as much as the next person is struggling. So you fighting two fronts. And so when when did I have time to stop and think about it? The only time I had time to stop and think about it is when they put me in that cell. On my community side, I got... The system sucks. You ain't never going to be nothing unless they want you to be. It's designed for you to fail. On the other hand, you got racism and discrimination where y'all can't be nothing. What y'all doing down here? You wasn't even allowed to go downtown unless it was Easter or Christmas. The moment you got off the train at City Hall, there were police there waiting for you talking about what you're doing down here. Right? You need to get on the train and get back to where you belong. And so you fighting all kinds of fronts. Right. And so in the community at the time and probably still to the day. Right. The only thing you can control is how people treat you. So out of that tragedy, out of your experience, get getting the max out of life was birthed. Yes. Tell me about the forming of getting the max out of life. How did you put all of that together? I don't know. It came in a <laughs> hole. I'm telling you, I don't know, because I, like I said, and I tell people this all the time, I wasn't writing a program, I was trying to save my life mm. because I was mentally and physically tired. You can't beat up everybody. You can't fight your way through everything. Everything can't start and end with violence. At some point, you have to take accountability for your actions and your behavior. And so 
the brainchild came from, yo, like you a hundred miles away from home. It's five years later and you still saying the same thing. Who got the problem? It can't be everybody else. Mm -hmm. So at some point you got to take ownership and say, yo, okay, what can I do? Right. What can I do so that when these situations come about or I can see these situations coming about and get away from it? Because a lot of times people get into situations and something happens and they talk about, I don't even understand what happened. Yes, you did. You understand perfectly because there were a long list of chances and opportunities that allowed you to get away from that situation. But your thought process and your behavior and your attitude, right, wouldn't let you do it. And so I just started writing and I started writing and I, and, and I started to say, well, what can I control? I can control my attitude. I can control my behavior. Right. I can understand where I'm going and how to present myself. I can set responsibility for my actions and behavior. There came the program because the program is five core principles. Knowing yourself, patience and discipline, accountability and responsibility, environment awareness, self-respect. Now, this program that's in various schools throughout Philadelphia is geared specifically toward young men, correct? It's geared towards young folks, not just young men. Okay. It's geared towards young folks. And so let me say this before we get into that, because this is important. So my program is not designed uh, for kids who are not coming to school who are not respecting their teachers, who are not doing the work. I don't reward bad behavior. We have 80%, and it might be higher, of our school kids, right, really want to learn. Mm -hmm. And they really want to do stuff. And they really want to get an education, mm -hmm. right? But all we ever talk about is the 20%, the kids who are disrupting the schools. There's so much negative flack thrown at our urban schools. These kids are no good. These kids don't want to learn. And that's not true. Mm -hmm. The problem is because you're spending so much time on the 20%, the 80% say, yo, if he's getting all the attention, I'm going to do what he's doing. Well, I'm focused on the 80%. So my program is designed for those kids that are coming to school, that are doing the work, that are respecting their teachers, but they're just trying to figure it out right. because they need a push. Because one thing is you can't come into my program and be disrespectful. You can't disrespect my guests. You can't disrespect me and you can't disrespect the process because the school building works. The education system works. School hours teaches you structure. It's just like work. Mm -hmm. You got to be at work at a certain time. Bam to bam. So those hours teaches you structure. Math teaches you critical thinking. English teaches you the basic fundamentals of reading and writing. Mm -hmm. And then the relationships you have with your teachers and your, and your, your peers teaches you how to navigate through different relationships. But when a kid hear the parent talk about how messed up the system is, how the education system is designed for you to fail, how you're never going to be anything, the kid loses all value in the school because the kid is now saying, what am I going here for? Because mm -hmm. I'm not getting nothing out of it. And they don't realize they're getting more out of it than they, than they think. And right. so my program then comes in and supports that you're getting the more out of it because we're surrounding these kids with folks that look like them, that come from places that they come from. And helps them understand because they took that building seriously, they're now doing all the things that they want to do. 
I wanted to talk to you about the gun violence epidemic here in the city. And it's interesting that you brought up the 80%, that you're focusing on the 80%. And I was going to ask you about the fact that the majority of kids out here are trying to avoid the troubles. They're trying to stay away from the gun violence. But, you know, I've heard some kids say it's kill or be killed. So sometimes it's they're they're forced to, to go into no, that so, direction. So, so I don't know necessarily know if they're forced. Or feel it necessary. Right. Uh, as much as, and again, <laughs> people about to get offended, but the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Mm. Right? Now, here's an example that I that I use. Will Smith got up, went and smacked Chris Rock, and went and sat back down. That was a great teaching moment for our youth. But if you look at what came out of that, most adults was like, yeah, you was, he was supposed to slap him. How are you going to disrespect his wife like that? We're promoting the violence, right? If most kids, they hear the adults around them talk about, I ain't taking no shorts. Ain't nobody getting over on me. Right. You want a problem, you got a problem, right? So what's the kid supposed to think? So, Max, what was the lesson there? Right. The lesson was that was a great opportunity for us to teach our kids that that wasn't appropriate, y'all. That was totally inappropriate. Regardless of what happened, Will Smith could have went and had a conversation with him afterwards and say, yo, that's kind of offensive. You know, my wife is dealing with some stuff here. Right. Right. And that that was kind of offensive. I know that they had a history, but that moment was a moment for us to have a, a, a candid conversation about how we can control our anger. Because one of the things I tell my mentees all the time is, yo, I would never tell you not to get mad. Anger is a natural thing. What I would tell you is how you process it and how you deal with it could even lead to great success or great failure. We don't practice enough conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. Because everything is I beat you up, I knock you out, I shoot you. But again... Part of that is because that's what they're hearing from the adults coming around them. That's what they're seeing. This is all they're processing all this. There's no accountability. And it's unfair to the kid because now the kid is only doing what they think that they're supposed to do. I ain't going to be no sucker. If you saw yesterday on the news, 77 gunshots at a playground. Yeah. At a playground. At a playground. Right? A rec center, yeah. At a rec center. Yeah. Where kids are supposed to go to have peace and have fun. 77 shots. Was it that drastic to the point where six of y'all had to go unleash 77 shots? Right. In a situation where there was a group of kids just doing what kids do every day. And it's supposed to be a safe haven. So you've got that 20% imposing their what they're doing on the 80%. And the, the part of the 80% is, well, the 20% is getting away with it. The 20% is feared. The 20% is the gangsters. And I might as well do what the 20% do. Because right? you ain't going to, again, it comes down to, ain't nobody going to take advantage of me. Don't nobody. Because the only thing young folks feel that they can control at this point is how people see them. Okay. And treat them, right? So they either shy away from it, hide from it, or they engage it and take it to the fullest. And there's not enough folks around them that's saying, young boy, like there's a 
whole world out there. There's so mm-hmm. much you can be doing right now instead of running around with your chest sticking out. Like I just said to a, a group the other day, y'all are spending all your time trying to show someone that you're doing better than what they're doing and all of y'all in the same situation. You're kids. Kids at this stage, from birth to 17 to 18, kids are liabilities. They're learning how to be assets. And they're learning from the people around them and the experiences that they're getting and the opportunities that they're having. So I I guess my question, Maxwell, would be, you know, with the childhood traumas, the poverty, the different things that are going on and just trying to grow up and just trying to grow up in general. How do we break the cycle? It, it starts. It's, there's a if there's an African proverb that says the destruction of the community starts within the home. Well, let me ask you a question. You know where the nonprofit community came from? No. Nobody knows. And that's what's really sad. The nonprofit community came from the Black Panther Party. It was the Black Panthers that showed the federal government that we don't need you to come into our communities. Mm. We just need the resources. Now, you go pull up the statistics. Last year, the federal government spent almost $500 billion. So what's going on? Right. 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 That you can't. The resources are there. The activities are there. Right. You got organizations all across Philly that are doing some amazing things right? from basketball leagues to different programs that are trying to get these kids engaged and have them understand that there's more to life than just being quote unquote, that guy or that girl. But if the kid is in a situation where their home life is tore out the frame, it's only so much that you can do because, again, this is why I say that parent-child relationship is so important because the kid is emulating the parent. Now, what do you do when a child doesn't have that relationship with their parents, with their mother, with their father? They're raising themselves. Right. You try to reach them and you try to bring them into one of these programs mm-hmm. or put them in a situation where they can find some semblance of success. Because the kid's going to do what works for them. So when I first came home, one of the things that I said is that I'm not going to talk to nobody. I ain't going to schools. I'm not doing none of that, right? Because the first thing a kid is going to ask you when you go to the schools and tell them, yo, you need to stay out of trouble, dog. Like, it's crazy out there. You don't want none of this. Here. Oh, hey, what you doing? And if you can't show the kid that what you're doing is far greater and successful then what it is that they're doing? Oh, here, go sit down somewhere because <laughs> I'm I'm over here. I'm eating a little bit, and you telling me to stop eating because I'm gonna go to jail or I'm gonna get in trouble or I I, I take that chance. I'm good because you ain't doing nothing. But if you're able to show them that what you're doing brings far greater success than anything that they're doing, and they ain't got to get in trouble, and they can get to a dollar and have fun. Yo, I won't go with you all here. Right. Leading by example. Tell me about the programs in schools and their success. How successful is getting the max out of life in these schools? 
Remember when OJ used to be on the parkway? Mm-hmm. Right? I was walking and I bumped into this guy. I said, yo, let me talk to you a minute. And we talked for like five minutes. And he was like, um, give me your number. I got to go. He said, I'm going to call you. I said, okay, call me. So like a week later, he calls me. We go, we sit down, we have lunch, and we talking. And so he's like, um, will you come work for me? And I said, um, hold up. I said, I got to be honest with you. And he was like, talk to me. I said, uh, I'm on parole. And he was like, what are you on parole for? I said, I'm on parole for murder. And he was like, I got one question for you. And I was like, what's that? He said, you done with the dumb stuff. And I said, yeah. He said, follow me. And he took me back into his office. He called his secretary. Um, and he said, this guy's going to be working for with us from now on. He's to have the run of the office. You're to give him the same respect that you give me and anybody else that come in the office. That was Michael Nutter. A week after wow. announced he was running for mayor. And I worked on his whole campaign. And me and him had many great conversations. And so when he got elected mayor, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, "Um, I want to work with kids. That's my, I believe we can have an impact. I said, if what I'm about to do is successful, you won't even get credit for it. And he was like, go do it. And I went to Logan Elementary School and I met with the principal. And I said to her, I want to do what is called Professional Fridays. And she said, what's that? I said, every Friday we're going to come in, we're going to have lunch Mm -hmm. with the sixth grade boys. We're going to bring in a professional male or female that looks like them. We're going to take them on two trips, uh, and we're going to have, we're just going to mentor them the whole school year. Huge success. I did Logan the whole uh, eight years, right? We branched out to where I started to go to speak to different high schools and stuff. But the mentor program was in Logan. And so when Mr. Nutter's turn was up, I went and I launched Getting the Max Out of Life. And I start shooting emails mm-hmm. to different schools. Mm-hmm. Listen, this is what we need to do. This is what I have in mind. And Mastery Charter was the first school that said, bring this in here. Mm-hmm. And the program, again, the kids have to sign a code of conduct where and they agreeing that they're going to come to school, that they're going to be doing their work, that they're going to be respecting their teachers, that they're going to be asked to do what it is that they're supposed to be doing in the program. For that, um, they would get the opportunity to go on two trips. Um, they would meet professionals that look like them. They would have all kinds of opportunities and stuff to explore. Right. The other part of the program is I pay for kids' driver's license. So every kid, mastery this year was my first graduating class for Mastery Charter Pickett. Out of the 22 kids in the program, 20 of them got their driver's license. 16 of them are going to college or trade school. Wow, right? Great. And the other five are kind of trying to figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. Um, so we pay for everything. We took them to the police academy. And they go through the virtual reality training. And they go through four life or death experiences that police go through. And then we talk about it. Right. And the crazy part is Inspector Johnson, who's in charge of the police academy, um, when we started this, we've had close to maybe 500 to 600 kids. This was the first year since we've been doing this program in 2017 that a kid didn't kill somebody innocently. Out of 500, and it was a girl. Okay. It was a girl. She just refused to shoot. My kids had the opportunity to meet Larry Miller, who's the chairman of the Jordan brand. And he got to talk about his journey. 
right? And he gave them all his book, right? And we had lunch with him. We take them to um, Rec Philly, uh, which mm-hmm. is a musical hub right. down in Philly, right? And they get to learn about putting music together mm-hmm. and all the instruments and, and going through that. We just had our first annual Junior 76ers championship game where West Philly High played Master Charter Picket. We surround these kids and give them activities where they have an opportunity, right, to grow and learn. Uh, they is required reading. They have to read Hill Harper's Letters to a Young Brother, okay. right, where we get to talk about each chapter because it's important for them to see that there's nothing new under the sun, which you're going through somebody's been through. Right. And then Tommy Oliver, who's a movie producer, flew in one time and came to the schools to talk to the kids and have them understand his journey. Uh, his struggle was similar to mine's, it, it, although, you know, his mother didn't abandon him, but his struggle was similar to mine's. And so we surround them with folks who look like them, right, so that they can see what it takes to be successful. Right, right. This sounds like an excellent program, and um, I'm assuming that it's a growing program. How do people get in contact with you if they'd like to learn more? Oh, so my website is all one word, gettingthemaxoutoflife.com. Maxwell Brown, motivational speaker, mentor here in Philadelphia, and, of course, heads up gettingthemaxoutoflife.com. That's exactly how you can learn more about him, and uh, I'm sure that people can contact you through your website as well. Yep. Right? Maxwell Brown, thank you so much for joining us in Bridging Philly. Thank you. Thank you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to Bridging Philly. The Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has a new tool to treat ADHD. We hear more from Sharaday Howard, who has our Newsmaker of the Week. The United States' first hospital devoted exclusively to the care of children for more than 150 years is right here in our area, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also known as CHOP, and it's known worldwide for serving children with complex and challenging illnesses. The institution has set up an unparalleled standard of scientific advancement and pediatric medicine. Recently, they received worldwide recognition for a new algorithm used as a tool that helps more precisely diagnose children with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or ADHD. Joining us on Bridging Philly as our newsmaker is the senior author of this study, Hawken Hawken Arson, MD, PhD, and the director of the Center of Applied Genomics at CHOP. Welcome, doctor. Thanks so much. So you do quite a lot at the hospital. Can you give us a rundown? So I'm a professor of uh, pediatrics and I'm out here in genomic uh, research and director of the uh, Center for Applied Genomics. So let's talk about this algorithm, and this could really change the game when it comes to diagnosing ADHD. Yeah, so the 
algorithm that we generated was directed at, you know, improving the diagnosis of children who have ADHD um, and to be able to make uh, a diagnosis of children with their ADHD, particularly if they have other what we often call comorbid conditions, um, because we what we see uh, almost 60 percent of the time in children with ADHD is that they also have additional neurodevelopmental or neuropsychiatric symptoms, such as anxiety, mood disorder, uh, depression, uh, or they can have conduct of various sort of, you know, behavioral issues that sort of are different from what typical or standard ADHD is about. And if you don't pay attention to this, you can miss the diagnosis. And particularly if you decide to treat the individual with a medication which is commonly used to treat ADHD, which are stimulant medications, if you have some of these comorbid con conditions, the child may not respond at all. So there was a need to come up with an algorithm to sort of, you know, both accurately diagnose and validate if there was a isolated ADHD or if there was a comorbid ADHD which, as I said, was pressed, turned out to be present almost 60% of us. This could really change things, not only in the home, but also in the school and the school system for teachers and creating lesson plans for kids who really need this specialized help. Yeah, and it particularly alerts them to the fact that, uh, uh, that ADHD is, you know, rarely almost present alone. There are almost always other symptoms that go along with it that you have to pay attention to and you have to address because any therapy that may be behavioral therapy or or ther psychiatric therapy of some kind even you know beyond medications may not have the sort of you know anticipated or expected effect unless you are aware of it and unless you address the other underlying conditions. And I really don't think the general public thinks in terms of studying genetics as a way to really streamline this type of research. But you say this is the perfect place to start. You know, what, one thing we, we did early on was to identify certain specific mutations uh, were uh, actually quite prevalent in ADHD. It was about 20-25% of children with ADHD that had these sort of, you know, we call them structural variants. These are sort of when the genome is being put together in, in the womb uh, of of a, of a child, it has to duplicate into, you know, into the different uh, cell types that, you know, it gets divided into. And sometimes the machinery makes, makes a mistake and it deletes certain regions out. So not all of the cells, and in some instances, the brain cells, they are missing some regions. And we found that in ADHD, there are certain regions that harbor genes that are called metabotrophic glutamate receptor genes. And these are genes that basically respond to or make a protein receptors that respond to the most sort of abundant and common neurotransmitters. So this is sort of like the mediator that the cells in the brain use to talk between themselves. Uh, and, and when this is deleted, the signaling, you know, is not uh, as accurate or with as much precision as it is otherwise. But it was interesting when we started looking at, you know, these patients more carefully, every single one of them 
had this comorbid symptoms. Not a single patient who had only ADHD had these uh, genetic variants. And this actually prompted us to subsequently seek out a medication. And we started treating these kids in a very, very, you know, um, uh, interesting response that we sort of, you know, got from it. And now this medication is sort of, you know, advancing in the clinical development and, and hopefully will, will sort of be a turn into a medication that will allow us to treat sort of this sort of comorbid complex form of ADHD that makes up about a two-third of the uh, of the patient. So comorbidity needs to be looked at, and that's the underlying issues or the accompanying issues alongside ADHD that can sometimes distract or cloud a more precise diagnosis. So a lot of people, a lot of children are being treated for things that aren't necessarily causing the problem. So you're saying that this study will help you find the underlying issues, also the ADHD, and you can treat more precisely the illness that is really the issue here. And ultimately, the medications that you use will also be more effective because they're more targeted. It, it should. That's a great, uh, great way of expressing it. It should do that. And once we have that medication sort of fully developed and, and established, then I think it's going to make a huge difference uh, for exactly these patients. And then the algorithm is, is a tool that we can, you know, we can have anyone use to sort of, you know, profile their patients and see if they are the patients that are the right candidates for, you know, medication A or should it be medication B or should it be medication C? And so that sort of is the type of precision that we are hoping to to accomplish going forward with this. Now, did you focus on any particular age group yeah, so we have mostly focused on children and adolescents. So the vast majority of the patients are sort of patients in the age range of, you know, four, four to uh, 20. Now, why is that? Why did you focus on this particular age range? We have the ability to use the genetic information and diagnose these genetic variants that sort of, you know, underlie some of the symptoms that these patients have we can essentially do that at any age. Now, uh, you have heard many pediatricians say sometimes it's difficult to diagnose really ADHD until the child sort of, you know, is five, five, six years of age and is in school and we get sort of this, you know, profile of information both from the family and the teachers and so on. But the genetic is something you're born with and therefore you can diagnose. So if you have symptoms earlier, that suggests you may have a condition. If you also have a genetic finding, you add the two and two together uh, and you can start intervene earlier. So this brings me to when a child is misdiagnosed and then medicated incorrectly, what that can lead to. And I think some adults are now looking back saying that they were being medicated for ADHD or some underlying problem incorrectly as children. And that has now led them to be dependent on medications throughout adulthood that have really created problems for them. And some of this has fed into the opioid epidemic. Yeah, I mean, this is a huge uh, problem. And sort of, you know, if the child is not being treated with the proper medication, then then often it's sort of, you know, the parents sort of give up and it's just like they just don't pursue it. And the child is not doing well in school. 
drops out of school, starts sort of, you know, taking all kinds of risky behaviors. And certainly some of these stimulant drugs, they may sort of, you know, promote your abusive uh, sort of use of that and that extent into other medications. And, you know, they get in conflict with the legal system. And so it, it's sort of, you know, one thing after another. So you can see how important it is to try to get it right in the beginning. So you have a foundation to build on and sort of, you know, treat and drive the proper sort of, you know, therapy for the, for the respective child. Um, because everyone is different. Everyone is different. So this research can really prevent a lot of domino effects, these domino problems that come from the initial diagnosis being wrong. And this research, you've gotten a lot of willing participants. You've gotten a lot of help. Yeah, so that is that is really the critical, critical thing. So, uh, you know, we are research sort of, you know, research driven. So so we, um, you know, we we can only do this if uh, families and, 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 and patients, you know, are willing to participate in our research, but the research drives the development of new therapies and new interventions. And so we have been fortunate uh, that a very, very high percentage of our families who, who are being cared for here at CHOP are willing to participate in our research. I mean, it's very rare that if we approach a family to participate that they say no. I mean, they may not have time then, you know, exactly then to do it, but but typically say, but I will be coming back in, you know, four months or whatever. And, you know, so we schedule it then. Uh, so we have been very fortunate, but I mean, this is sort of, you know, it's it really is a bounding between the, the research team and the families to, you know, to, to be able to, to access samples do these type of discoveries, come up with algorithms that sort of streamline the diagnosis and are accurate and reproducible. Uh, and then we can bring that to the clinical, to the clinical uh, uh, environment, you know, through various mechanisms um, uh, going forward. So what's the goal here ultimately? What's the best case scenario, your golden egg, given all of this research? Yeah, I mean, uh, the goal is really to diagnose as many of uh, these children uh, accurately uh, as we can. And then basically, when we have the accurate diagnosis, we can come up with the most optimal therapy. I mean, that is that gives each child the, the best potential to develop, normally learn and sort of, you know, stay stay healthy and, and, and within sort of, you know, our our norm, if you will, sort of from a school and, and, and development standpoint. And this research, you said, can be the foundation of so much more going forward. Not only new studies in medication, but a new way of thinking, a new way of addressing this real problem, and then kind of branch off and go into other areas of medicine that will really help solve other medical mysteries. Yeah, but I mean, it it, it certainly does, and 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 sort of, you know, uh, as as you know, if you have you know ADHD and particularly comorbid, perhaps ADHD, I mean, you are at risk of other other conditions going forward, addiction. Um, you know, and uh, and even sort of, you know, uh, psychiatric conditions, development of psychosis, development of schizophrenia uh, and um, and alike is more common in these children. But if you treat them, they you eliminate that risk. So, I mean, that is the absolute critical, critical piece. Now, no one has really looked at it 
to my awareness carefully, for example, I mean, dementia, Alzheimer's disease and cognitive sort of, you know, deficits is probably going to be one of our biggest disease, um, you know, in the in the future uh, uh, to treat because, you know, we are getting older uh, and, you know, the cognitive decline still continues. And as you know, a lot of people start having cognitive decline, you know, in the 60s, 70s. And, and no one has really looked at it. I mean, whether the uh, individuals who have ADHD and related disorders, are they more prone to sort of, you know, end up with those type of symptoms? But that would not surprise me um, if that is the case. So you may additionally prevent those type of symptoms to develop later, much later on in life by treating the child properly up, you know, in the beginning. And personally, I've had a lot of friends that have developed severe dependencies on opiates and other stimulants based on medications they feel that they were given as kids. And that's really created a level of complexity in their lives that really could have been avoided had it been diagnosed correctly in the first place. And the school system is absolutely the best example of this, the Philadelphia public school system. There are a lot of kids out there that need specialized lesson plans. And now with this tool, this algorithm, these lesson plans will be much more effective and teachers will have a much easier time being able to really reach these kids. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's sort of sad when you say it. I mean, I am aware of those uh, samples uh, as well. And, and many of my colleagues who work with me on, on ADHD and, and related conditions, I mean, you see this way too often uh, that there is sort of, you know, this type of uh, negative consequence, unfortunately. And that just emphasizes the importance of sort of, you know, trying to drive this focus, you know, as broadly uh, uh, so we reach out to every child and give every child an opportunity to sort of, you know, develop as normally as possible. From the beginning, middle to the end, all of this was done right here in Philadelphia at CHOP. And you say Philadelphia and CHOP in particular were uniquely suited to this study. Yeah, CHOP is, is obviously, uh, you know, uh, one of the biggest uh, children's uh, and, and most respectable, you know, children's hospital in the world. And uh, and I was fortunate to, you know, get uh, to train here at CHOP uh, and uh, and subsequently get a, you know, get a get a position here to stay on as a faculty. I'm actually from uh, uh, Iceland myself, and I transiently went to Iceland for some work uh, for a few years, but I actually never left CHOP completely because I, I had a grant and I kept doing research here. And so I have uh, really been here at CHOP for um, uh, just about 30 years now. Uh, and uh, so it's a, long, uh, it's, it's a long time. But I mean, the opportunity has just been enormous. And, you know, we have such a diverse patient populations and, and families here who are, you know, willing to participate in our research, contribute to our mission of sort of, you know, making breakthroughs and innovative um, uh, therapies uh, sort of, you know, across just, you know, pediatric diseases in general, but it just has been an, you know, enormous, enormous, uh, uh, you know, pleasure and, uh, and sort of, you know, delight uh, to be here uh, for all this time. And Philly has some really special attributes that contributed to this. Well, I think it is the diversity of patients we have here is more than in most other places. I mean, 
as you know, Boston Children's Hospital, which is highly competitive, it's shot, uh, uh, it's significantly smaller, uh, doesn't have nearly as much diversity as, 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 as we had. And we just see that, that that is such a significant part of why our research has been successful. Uh, you know, and the program that I run here, I mean, we have, we have published over 900, uh, uh, you know, publications in, uh, in a matter of about 15 years uh, uh, that I have run this particular study and program. And, and it would be absolutely impossible without sort of, you know, the um, willingness of the families and patients to participate and the diversity component of it has, has really had the greatest impact of, of all. Chop from our program and our colleagues here has been absolutely second to none. I mean, uh, and the impact this has had on medicine broadly, I mean, we have collaborations all over the world. So give us a picture, the impact of this tool. What do you see? Well, I mean, I think it's going to make a huge difference and basically affect, uh, you know, millions of children who will just get a better diagnosis and better therapies as a, as a result of it. And, and, you know, not, you know, not directly, but indirectly just because people are going to be using the tool to do it. Thank you so much for joining us here at Bridging Philly. Thanks so much. Next, we wanted to speak to someone on the ground, someone doing the work with the children and get their perspective. So we sat down with Shahida Lowe, an educator here in Philadelphia, to tell us her thoughts on the new algorithm. How important is it for a kid with ADHD to be properly diagnosed in your experience? I think it's very important because then it allows us as the support staff at school and the educators to know how to set up the educational programming for those students. Um, so I think most importantly, depending on whether they're hyperactive or maybe a little inattentive, um, that gives us an idea of maybe what maybe kind of interventions or accommodations the kid's gonna need in the classroom. Um, so when they're not properly diagnosed, um, they're just more likely to be considered the child that has more behavioral problems. Um, and then we might not be targeting the exact support or help that they need. So ultimately it's not effective. Yeah, no, I would say it's not the most effective when they're not properly diagnosed. Um, I think as educators, we do go through a series of steps to assess. Um, so really, we're always looking to look at that end game still of like what kind of help does the kid need. But if they're not properly diagnosed, then like maybe what we're thinking of as plan wise might not be the most appropriate thing, um, which just means that we're going throughout more trial and error than we need to. So now CHOP has this algorithm that really is in its early stages of development. Mm -hmm. But the point is to allow, give you guys a little help. Yeah. And making sure that not only the kids treated correctly, they're medicated correctly. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, now you have all these other related issues that can be attended to as well. Right. So how excited are you about this and how will this help you? Um, it sounds really exciting to be honest. Um, especially I think the medication piece, I think um, a lot of families that I've worked with have often had apprehension about, well, I want to make sure it's the right medication or it's not too much or it's not going to make them too lethargic. Um, so I know with them at least having that extra layer of support to know like what's going to be the right thing for their kid, I think they feel a level of reassurance. Um, and then I think that helps then maybe that homeschool partnership as well. Um, I think that then parents feel like, well, then they feel like they can address things on that end that 
we might be seeing their kid in a different light. Um, and then just also from my experience, I think it's really just important in general, whether you use medication or not, just because in my personal opinion, it's just a tool, it's not a solve all by any means, um, that the kid gets to experience themselves feeling very different um, and a lot more capable and successful in the school setting. And ultimately, this groundbreaking study, this tool, will have impact all across the world. And it started right here in Philadelphia. Thanks for joining us. That's our newsmaker. Thanks for joining us for Bridging Philly, brought to you by Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at Bridging Philly and with me at Raquel on Air. And if you have any topic ideas, let us know. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. For Sherrod Howard, Antoinette Lee, and our producer, Arian Fulcher, I'm Raquel Williams. Be well.